Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. Now, what do I got for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about uh, China making waves near Taiwan again. We're going to talk about Zelensky's visit to the United States, and then we'll talk about Russia's remilitarization. All that and more coming up. Alrighty, let's get into the rapid fire news. So, we have America pledging to send Patriot missile batteries to Ukraine and speculation that as Congress moves through this new omnibus spending package that they conveniently waited until right now to put before everyone, that there's going to be another $45 billion going to Ukraine. And then, uh, yeah, so that's going to bring the total up to, what, 120-something billion dollars now? And more probably coming along the way, you know. Like, even once the new Congress comes in, in like January... How many of them are actually going to vote against giving Ukraine infinite money and a blank check? And how many of them are were only pretending that that was a priority? Because we see now from a, a lot of the people who claim to be fiscal conservatives that fiscal conservatism went straight out the window when it was Ukraine. So what happens next year when we have the new Congress? I suspect more of the same. Especially once uh, the Taiwan war kicks off, whether that's next year or the year after, I heavily suspect that all these so-called America First conservatives will make Democrats out of themselves and immediately vote to send even more money and more weapons and equipment to Taiwan to try to, because uh, ah, it's because um, when we lose in Ukraine, right? Just like after Afghanistan, when we lost, and the main focus that people were on was barely the American citizens left behind. There was barely any talk of the U.S. soldiers that died, all the 13 soldiers that died, after a ceasefire where no one died during the ceasefire. This is a ceasefire with the Taliban, mind you, of all people. So there was no talk of our Marines, of our soldiers. There was no talk of our citizens left behind. It was all about uh, the Afghanis we were leaving behind and how we... We needed to make sure they were safe. It was all about what did that what did that say to our allies and all these distractions, all these distractions. Like, where was where's the priority for our own people? And once we lose in Ukraine, we can expect a repeat of all that. People have learned nothing. I, I've I've been observing this situation as I do with many others. People have learned absolutely nothing from this war, and that's a shame. So what's going to happen when we lose is people will forget about all the money we sent to Ukraine. They'll forget about all the weapons we sent to Ukraine. They'll complain about it for like two seconds, and then they'll move on to the, but what does this say about our to our allies? How do we reassure them that we're going to be there for them and that we're not just going to just going to back away even though backing away is exactly what the United States needs quite frankly 
but we can't do that because allies. And more and more, uh, I'm starting to see it as well. More and more people, people are bringing up that that infamous farewell address by old number one George Washington, where he expressly warned us not to get into these types of situations. No foreign entanglements. If only we had listened to him. And I'm starting to see it more. More people bring it up. But like. I, I wish it wasn't that way. But I know who I'm dealing with. So I know that it's going to end up exactly that way. When we lose in, in Ukraine. The Americans will be forgotten. The price that Americans paid for that war will be forgotten. And it's going to be. How can we. How can we double down and triple down next time on the next war? How can we... It's not about how we're going to reconcile defeat with the American people. No, it's how are we going to reconcile that defeat with our allies? You know, because America always comes second, third, and last in the minds of these, these brilliant thinkers, these brilliant strategists who manage to lose every war that they get us into. Whenever, whenever the priority, it's everyone else. How are we going to reassure Taiwan that we're not going to abandon them after the utter cal calamitous defeat in Ukraine? How are we going to reassure them that we haven't succumbed to intervention fatigue? As if intervention fatigue was the problem, not the interventions that cost us everything. In increasingly everything. Like... We're dealing with hyperinflation because we keep printing all this money. Where's the money going? To Ukraine. To the Ukrainian elite. Their government. Their corruption. And then what's left over gets laundered back to our corrupt government. And we pay the price in higher and higher and higher prices. We pay for this. And then they have the gall to double the size of the IRS to tax us after the fact. It's It's insanity. And I, I know that I'm, we're just going to get more of the same once this Ukraine thing is over. So, for all the things that we're getting right now, uh, with all, all this money, all this aid, all this stuff going to Ukraine, you can guarantee that at, at least 50% of that is also going to go to Taiwan, or at the very least is going to be allocated to Taiwan. I'm not sure if they'll be able to get that money to Taiwan. Uh, you know, they probably will. Maybe. Electronically. Would not. But. No one's going to learn anything from this. No one's going to learn anything from this. It's going to be let's triple down on Taiwan. So that we can reassure our allies that we're not going to abandon them. Even though abandoning the allies is what America needs. It, it might not be what they need. It might not be what they want. But it's what America needs. Um, We keep. I'm hearing increasingly, and again, this is my observations from, uh, you know, constantly sitting back and watching other people's takes on this crisis and on the geostrategic position of the United States, people are more and more and more talking about American overextension and overcommitment problem. But no one wants to pull back on any of the commitments. It's the strangest thing. Everyone recognizes the problem. No one wants to do the obvious solution to the problem, which is to pull back. No one wants to pull back. Uh, granted, the, Amer the American public is perfectly fine with pulling back. When I say no one, I'm 
expressly not referring to the American public, the American public does not care. I mean, they'll put a, a bumper sticker on saying, stop Putin, stop war. But if we went home tomorrow, they would be perfectly fine with that. And they'd complain about it for two seconds, and then they'd get on with their life. Because Ukraine means nothing to us. So when I say everyone, I mean the politically active. The politically active recognize this problem. And they're the ones primarily talking about the problem in the first place. They recognize this problem of overextension and don't want to take the obvious logical course for correcting it. It's the strangest thing. Uh, no, maybe it's just because I'm, you know, the isolationist in the room. And I can always, I can never rule out that maybe I'm just the weird one here. But, like, to me, it's, oh, oh, oh great, we can just, just go home and then you don't have this overextension issue. Uh, done deal. Let's not have over 800 military bases overseas. Let's bring that number down to maybe uh, zero. <laughs> but, you know, ten, 10 to 15 will suffice, you know, but zero is better, you know. Let's not have half a million alliances and overseas commitments and defense guarantees and promises. You know, let's how about we cut down on some of those, if not all. All of them is better, but you know, some is good. But no, they, no one wants to do that. We don't. Let's leave Israel. No, we can't do that. Let's leave NATO. No, no, we can't do that. Okay, let's let's stop expanding NATO. No, no, we can't do that. We can't do that either. <laughs> okay, well, let's leave NATO as it is, and then we just pull out of it. No, no, we we can't do that. No. Okay, well, let's let's drop the Taiwan issue then, and just leave leave China alone. No, we can't do that either. Uh, okay, okay, so so <laughs> where where are we gonna get out of this overcommitment problem? How are we gonna get out of this? If every option for pulling back is just taken off the table immediately as some, <laughs> as though it was just unthinkable that we would ever do those things. Ah, it's the strangest thing. A little frustrating, but at the same time entertaining to watch, at least for the time being. But, oh goodness, goodness, we're in quite the kerfuffle. Uh, but in other news, we have China continuing its reopening, and it's that reopening has made its way to the Hong Kong border as they are now relaxing restrictions on the border with Hong Kong, which I believe will probably lead to a, a concerted attempt towards further integrating Hong Kong into China proper. Now, perhaps that only goes as far as Hong Kong being an autonomous region, similar to how Xinjiang and Tibet and Inner Mongolia are, but still China. They still adhere to the Chinese government. That's probably in Hong Kong's future. Probably in Macau's future as well. And that's just the way it is. Now perhaps, if they're lucky, that'll be Taiwan's future as well. But we'll see about that. Uh, across the pond from China, we have Japan increasing its military budget to 6.8 trillion yen, or roughly 55 billion dollars. And their plan is to get up to like uh, 75 or 76 billion later on by like 2020, I believe it's 2027. They want to eventually get up to 76 billion by 2027, which would make them, I believe, one of the largest spenders on their military. One of the largest. 
so we'll we'll see what becomes of that, and we'll see where the money goes. Because if America is anything to sh to go by, you can spend a whole lot of money on your military. It doesn't mean that you're doing useful things with it. So we'll see. We'll see what becomes of this. Then we have uh, in America we have a blizzard taking the country by storm. Uh, it was a short affair, a relatively short affair. Uh, you know, a, ni a nice, nice cold snap that made the roads a nightmare to drive on for a, a couple days. It was a slip and slide, except without any of the fun. I'll, I'll just, I'll say that much. Uh, and people in the South have gotten to see the the mythical, the the mythical event known as snow for a second time now that I think about it, actually. Because we had a, another winter storm like this last year. Well, no, it wasn't last year. It was last... Was it last year? No, no. It, it, it was earlier on this year. Ah, that's what it is. Uh, back when it was still snowing, because winter begins at, at the end of a year and goes on to the next. We had a, a major cold snap in America towards the end of last winter and it went all the way down to Texas and there was this big thing about the energy grids in Texas and uh, the winterization of wind turbines and because what had happened was all the green energy got frozen over so the, the Texans had to use coal to fill the gap and so that sparked a debate about green energy in the country so we have another one uh, this year so is this a sign that things are getting colder, not warmer. Uh, technically, that's still climate change, but uh, dramatically different from all those predictions I heard as a kid. But then again, the predictions from before I was born was that we were going to go into another ice age. So, But hey, I guess it's a good thing they call it climate change now instead of global warming or global cooling. Because now, if the climate changes, it, it just fits. But the climate might change, but the climate crisis, I believe, is fake and I've stated why multiple times so for the time being I'll just leave that alone that alone and in other news we have North Korea reportedly sending weapons to Russia to aid in Russia's war effort to Ukraine and of course because they've taken the side of the Russians now they're criminals just like the Iranians never mind the fact that we're backing Nazis in Ukraine that's the, you know, we're just gonna gloss over all of that, you know. We're just gonna, we're just gonna leave that on the table and walk away. But, <laughs> that's what I have for the rapid fire, and we'll get into the meat of this episode in just a moment. And we're back. Now let's get into the meat of this episode, and we'll start with Zelensky's visit to the U.S. So I have this broken up into two pieces. One is his uh, press briefing with Biden. This is pretty short. Uh, he, the, the remarks that they gave were very short. So uh, he had this press briefing with Biden. Biden, in his speech, he said that the American people were with him, him being Zelensky, and that we'd stay with him. Now, I'll say that that's a bit of a stretch considering how many people think that we've already given too much to Ukraine. But Biden says that we'll be in this for as long as it takes although i given some developments going on with the on the russian side of this 
I don't imagine that as long as it takes is going to be very long, if at all. And I also don't suspect that, uh, well, I do suspect that this war is going to go very differently than how people in the Pentagon think that it will. Or at the very least, differently than how they're telling us that it will. If I can see how this is going to play out, then I can guarantee you that they know, especially considering that they're doing all this real-time intelligence sharing with the Ukrainians, they know how this is going to end. I know how this is going to end. You, if you're listening to shows like this, you know you have a way better idea of how this is going to end than, unfortunately, a lot of people who've bought into the idea that Russia was losing. Now, I am well aware that I am in the staunch, I am in the staunch minority on this position. So maybe it is wiser to take what I say with a grain of salt. Me and the people that I'm listening to, you know, the Duran, Scott Ritter, you know, shows like that, Jimmy Dore. Maybe it is better to take us with the grain of salt and go along with what the larger number of people are saying. You know, that I, I'll just say it. I could be wrong. And all the people I'm listening to could be wrong. This could just be an echo chamber. But I have a sneaking suspicion that this embattled minority in the coming months will be proven correct. And a lot of people will suddenly find themselves looking towards the things that we have been saying for the past few months. So... But it, again, that depends on how the Russians go about this. They're in the driver's seat here. When they begin that offensive, be it in the winter or in the spring, whenever they do it, I am completely out of the business of predicting what they're going to do. But whenever they get around to it, it will change the facts on the ground. And in light of that, because again... Everybody involved in this Zelensky-Biden, Zelensky-U.S. meeting, everyone involved in this knows. Because they have those intelligence briefings. Biden has the intelligence briefings. Zelensky has access to real-time U.S. intelligence because we share it with him. Everybody in Congress has these briefings. Uh, certainly the leadership of the parties. Everybody of meaning knows how things are actually going in Ukraine and what's likely to happen. They have more infra they have more access to information than I do. And I am able to see it. And if I am able to see it, and a handful of others are able to see it, then I know for a fact they're able to see it. That, that's sort of how you can sort of how you can make your way towards knowing what other people know. When they have access to more information than you do, and you're able to figure something out, you can pretty much guarantee that if they're an intelligence agency, they also know these things. So everyone knows how this is going to end. Everyone knows this is going to go down. So in light of that, I can't help but view everything going on with this Zelensky visit to the United States with... Uh, I'll, I'll just say a very heavy dose of salt. I'll say that, and salt and cynicism, because when you see things in the way that I've been seeing them for the past few months, and you're, you're well aware of how I see this thing going, 
when you see remarks like we're America's going to stay with Ukraine and we're going to stay in it for as long as it takes. And also Biden announced a $1.8 billion aid package to Ukraine, including the Patriot missile system we talked about earlier on. It takes a while to train people for that missile system to use them. So now there's questions of whether or not we're going to skip the training process and send in U.S. troops into Ukraine to man these defense systems ourselves. Now, obviously, if you're Russia, you're going to target air defense systems, which means there's a possibility of American troops being shot at because they are a target. Air defense systems are a target in this war. So if, are we going to go man the systems ourselves or are we going to train the Ukrainians to use them? That's going to take months to get them to do. And again, eh, eh, all the people involved in this know what I know. They're, they're seeing more information than I have access to. So they know that this war might not still be going long enough for them to even get this missile system into the country. The Ukrainian army might not be an effective fighting force anymore by the time they get this missile system to the country. I mean, just a few weeks ago, we talked about when General Zeluzhny spoke and he said that the number of effective combat troops he had was around 190,000. Compare that to the 350,000 he had at the beginning of the war. He's lost almost half of his operational force over the course of these few months. Uh, I say few, it's, it's been almost a year now. The Russians now have the numeric advantage. They now have the numerical superiority. So what happens now? If you've already lost half your force, what happens when the Russians, I don't know, take Bakhmut? If they take Bakhmut and push the Ukrainians out, okay, the Ukrainians still have an army. But if they encircle Bakhmut, now the Ukrainians are going to lose a few tens of thousands of troops. Well, that's that's catastrophic. That's catastrophic when you look at how far they're their forces have fallen already. That would be catastrophic. If the Russians begin their offensive and then make a sweeping move that encircles, uh oh, another 30, potentially even 50, but we'll just, we'll just keep the numbers low for the sake of the Ukrainians here. They make a massive move and encircle another 30,000 Ukrainian troops. How, how are the Ukrainians supposed to respond to that? What... If the Ukraine's army collapses, that's it. Because beyond the Dnieper River, there is no defensive line. There's no defensive line beyond the Dnieper. The Ukrainians know that, which is why they're fighting so hard in the Donbass. Because the Donbass is rough terrain. That's some of the roughest terrain in the country until you get to the border with Poland and Slovakia. And Hungary. But the border, the rough terrain on the border with those countries is not going to help you when your enemy is attacking you from the opposite direction. Once you get past the Donbass, Ukraine becomes flat. Really, really, really flat. That's terrible defensive terrain. Absolutely terrible. So when they get pushed out of the Donbass, as it's looking increasingly like they're about to do, especially if Bakhmut truly is the linchpin of their defenses and their logistics in the region, the Donbass region, 
Bakhmut falls, they get ejected from the Donbass for the purposes of their own logistics and consolidating their line. Then you've lost the most defensible territory you have in the east of your country. Now there's only the Dnieper River. You talk, and if we're talking about an encirclement of, of Bakhmut, where they lose maybe a few thousand troops, that's really bad. Because now you have, that's fewer men you can defend the river line with, and the river line is already long enough as is. Plus, the Russians have numerical superiority. So, again, I can see all of that. So, I know for a fact that the all the people involved in this know even more than that because they have the real-time intelligence sharing. They have military analytics, uh, like, on a whole other level, above whatever my analysis is going to be. They know all this. So when we talk about sending these weapons to Ukraine, sending this money to Ukraine, they know that this is going to happen. They know this, and yet they go forward with it. So I just can't help but view this as a waste. But the press briefing with Biden wasn't the biggest story of the year. It was rather minor, in fact, aside from that $2 billion that they want to send to them, in addition to what's looking like another $45 billion once the omnibus spending package goes through Congress, and we know it will, because Congress is corrupt. So that that's looking like 47, another 47 billion going to Ukraine. We were already at like 80. So that's 127 billion straight to Ukraine. Uh, just so, so, so fuck me, right? <laughs> but the, the big thing here was Zelensky's speech to Congress. So uh, I'll, I'll Man, look, this this whole Zelensky episode in the United States is just insufferable for me. But I did it for the people. I did it for the people. Uh, so there was a joint meeting of Congress where Zelensky gave an address. When he came in, you know, and they announced him, uh, everyone was clapping for a solid two minutes and 20 seconds straight. So I'll, 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 and, and yes, I, I counted. Because I thought it was suspicious how long they were going. Because he was he was just standing at the podium. He was standing. Uh, Zelensky looked like he was ready for them to fucking start, and they just they just kept on going. So I'm, I'm like, dang, how long are they gonna clap for this man for? And so I, I went back and found the place where they started clapping. Yeah, it was two minutes and twenty seconds. <laughs> and yes, I am that petty. So, <laughs> but and, and and then you have Pelosi introducing him, and she's like, we are proud to present to you. His Excellency, and I'm like, His Excellency, you fucking fucker. <laughs> I'm like, this guy is not worthy of all this. You can stop. You can stop right now. But uh, all, all that aside, my my staunch opposition to this man and our involvement with his country aside, we'll get into the the meat and potatoes of this. Uh, so he began by proclaiming what he called victory in the minds of the people of the world. Not victory in the war, victory in the minds of the people of the world. Essentially saying that his struggle and the struggle of the Ukrainians has won over the heart of the world's people. He said that, well, he, he proclaimed victory. Now, um, I am, you know what? I'm just, I'm just going to be that guy. He has not done that. 
But a lot of people in the West believe that they have. So he's, he's playing to this belief. And in that sense, it is smart. Like, I'm sure he knows that the folks in China do not care about him. And the folks in well, any country outside of Europe and America and the Anglosphere, for that matter. But the countries within Europe, America, and the Anglosphere, they believe that the world is united against Putin. They believe this. So he, him, he's playing to that belief when he says that we've won this victory in the minds of the people of the world. Because not many on this side of things are going to call him out for saying that. And so right off the bat, we can see he's playing to this specific audience. He's playing to this specific audience. He's not being truthful. He's playing to this audience and to our preconceived biases of this conflict. He said that Europe was stronger and more independent than ever before, which is also not true because Europe is on the brink of an energy crisis. They are less independent than they were before because they're finding out just they're finding out just how dependent on Russian gas they were. And even with the sanctions, even with this price cap about to come into effect, they're still buying Russian gas. They're still buying it from Russia and buying it from third parties like India as well to try to stock up again at high at a higher price because they they got rid of their contracts their long-term contracts with russia so they're buying it at a higher price on the global market you have countries like arabia who are buying the russian the russian gas to keep the lights on at home and then selling their own oil to take advantage of the high international prices everyone's making a profit off of this except for us and the europeans are they've gotten the absolute shortest stick you can imagine so him saying that Europe was stronger and more independent than ever before is objectively not true, but people believe that it is. So you can already start to see, and I guess his speech sort of makes this more evident uh, in a, a visible way, the disconnect between what's actually happening and what people on this side of the conflict believe is happening. See, the the media in the United States, media in Europe and Britain, we won the propaganda war a long time ago. Or at the very least, we scored a decisive victory. I can't say that we won the war, because as the situation changes, their reporting is going to have to change in accordance with the situation. So we haven't won the war, the media war. But we have scored a decisive victory in the media space to where we control the narrative, we control the propaganda. And by we, I'm not referring to folks like myself and independent news. I'm referring to the corporate press, the people who propagate the propaganda. They scored a decisive victory early on in this war, which is why people even believe the lies about Russia that they do. That Russia's losing, Russia's bad logistics, that this is Putin's folly, that this is Putin's war, and that you're, you paying higher prices at the pump is Putin's price hike, and Putin inflation, and all these things, that, where they're blaming Russia for all your problems, when it was their policies, 
not their policies as in the press, but their policies as in Western governments that caused this, they won the propaganda battle decisively early on in the conflict. And because they did, we have this radical disconnect between what people on this side of the conflict believe about it versus what people outside who are uninitiated as well as people on the Russian side actively aiding Russia believe. Because what the rest of the world outside of, again, Europe, America, and the Anglosphere, everyone outside of the West has a radically different view of this conflict than the people on this side do. And this speech really does exemplify that because who is he talking to? He's obviously not talking to he's obviously not talking to the Indians. He's he's obviously not talking to the Saudis or the Iranians. He's talking to the Europeans. He's talking to the Anglosphere. He's talking to the United States. But in order to speak to us in a language that we understand, he has to play towards our preconceived notions of how the war is going. Notions which were brought to us by the propaganda press. The press that won decisively the propaganda battle in the beginning of the war. So it's, it's very interesting to look at and very interesting to observe. And I, I hope I've laid it out in a way that under, that's easy to understand. Because that's what's happening here. And it's so strange because like, it's such a, again, it's such a wild disconnect from what's actually happening. It's it's so strange. But I'll continue. He said, the quote, the Russian tyranny has lost its control over us. He went on to say that this struggle will define in what world our children and grandchildren will live. And then their children and grandchildren. It will define whether it will be a democracy of Ukrainians and for Americans, end quote. So he's playing this up. He's the underdog and this struggle is monumental and it will be very symbolic and it will have long lasting repercussions. That's what he's implying it. And I believe that to an extent he is correct, just not necessarily in the way that he believes. And I'll, I'll get into that later on. But this is a struggle essentially for the future of the world order is what he's saying. That I'll sum it up that way. He continues by saying, quote, this battle cannot be frozen or postponed or uh, he says that this battle cannot be frozen or postponed. It cannot be ignored, hoping that the ocean or something else will provide a protection. End quote. And here he's obviously talking about us. He's wrong, by the way, but I'll, I'll continue. He believes that the world is too interconnected and interdependent to allow someone to stay aside and feel safe. So let's let's digest that for a little bit. That it can't be frozen. The war can't be frozen. It can't be postponed. And it, it can't be ignored. So there's there's no ceasefire that's going to be signed. No ceasefire. There's there's no armistice. There's no like armistice or a truce. There's no truce. There's no white peace in this. He's essentially saying that this is a total war. When you lay out the the stakes as he did before, and then saying that the battle cannot be frozen or postponed and can't be ignored, he's saying 
that this is a total war. Which means that there can either be total victory, which for Ukraine essentially have it would have to mean the fall of the Russian government. It would have to mean the total withdrawal of Russian troops from Ukraine and probably a Ukrainian land grab in Russia. Because at this point, what else could total victory be? It would have to mean some acquisition of land in Russia. At the very least, regime change in Russia, along with the reintegration of the breakaway territories in the Donbass. So either he has total victory or he has total defeat. Total defeat for the Ukrainians means total victory for the Russians. Because total defeat for Ukraine means all of Ukraine ends up annexed. Because if this is a total war, well, the Russians have to respond accordingly. And they'll have to proceed accordingly. Which will mean total defeat if Ukraine is beaten. So it is an existential crisis for Ukraine, but... It did not have to be this way. It There was the Minsk agreements. Ukraine didn't want to abide by them. Then there were the peace talks back in March and April. Ukraine and Russia almost had an agreement. And then Britain and the United States came in and sabotaged those talks. And then the war continued. So now, now we're in this, this standstill where the war must go on. And if that's how it's going to be, then again, you mu- you will either have total victory or total defeat. The battle cannot be frozen or postponed anymore. There's, there's no room for talk, which would be freezing or postponing the war. No, we can't sit down and talk anymore. We have to continue. And he's saying that it can't be ignored, hoping that the ocean or something will provide a protection, because he doesn't want... He, he wants to try to attack that line of logic that is so natural to the being of Americans. Because ultimately, Americans understand we are really, really, really far away from all these places. Americans, however uninitiated in global politics as they are, they understand that much about their country. They understand that much about the country. So when he says this, he's trying to make the case that, sure, you might be far away, but it still means something to you because his entire goal is to try to get Americans to stay with him as he continues this course. He believes the world is too interconnected and interdependent to allow someone to stay aside and feel safe. And I'll, I'll break that down after I've covered the rest of his speech. He says that next year will be a turning point, the point when Ukrainian courage and American resolve must guarantee the future of our common freedom, the freedom of people who stand for their values. So he's saying that next year is going to be, and again, he's he's right, next year will be a turning point, just not in the way that I think he believes it will be. He says, whenever Ukrainian courage and American resolve must guarantee the future of our common freedom. And he says freedom, he's now playing to the idea in the minds of Americans that they are the guarantors of freedom around the world. So he's, again, he knows his audience. Then he brought up, interestingly, he brought up Bakhmut. And he said how even though Russia has been attacking it since May, 
attacking and attacking and attacking. Since May, it still stands. And then he, he got a, a bit of a standing ovation for a period of time. But I'll, I'll just say right here, he's picked an incredibly poor city for a statement like that. Considering that, as we, we've been talking about over the past few weeks, and again, going back to the context of this, they all know, courtesy of military intelligence and courtesy of, you know, all the intelligence agencies and that real-time intelligence sharing, everyone in this room knows that Bakhmut is in danger of falling. With Zelensky being chief among them. So it's bizarre to me that he would pick this city of all cities to try to stake the claim that he's... Uh, it's strange that he would choose this city and not something else. Not maybe, I don't know, <laughs> like Kharkov. Why not Kharkov? You liberated, you you fought around Kharkov, and then you liberated the area around Kharkov. It was a, a Russian withdrawal, but hey, you can you can say it. Hey, you can say that you liberated, you know, Kherson. So many lives lost, but you finally did it. it that was also a Russian withdrawal, but you did it. There. There are wait. What about Kiev? When Russia came in from the north in the beginning of the war, you held your held firm there. Uh, there's a, a number of different and, in my view, better cities he could have picked than Bakhmut, because Bakhmut is on its last legs, and he knows this. He said he went to the front before coming to America. He went to Bakhmut, so. He knows this, and yet he chooses Bakhmut as the centerpiece of his speech in sort of laying out the Ukrainian resistance to Russian aggression. And I, I just can't help but feel that this is going to blow up in his face when the whole thing comes crashing down later on when Bakhmut is taken by Russians, as it's already in the process of being taken. Again, the, the Russians are moving to, one, encircle the city, and two, they already, they're in parts of Bakhmut. They are in the streets fighting the Ukrainians as we speak, and he knows this, which, again, just makes it so much, it's so strange that he would say, now, I keep saying strange through this episode, but I, 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 can't piece, I can't piece it together. So it, it's just strange to me that he would say this for this specific city. I just can't help but feel that he's digging his grave on this one. But he, he went on to compare this battle, his battle against Russia, to America's battle against Nazi Germany, and he specifically referred to the Battle of the Bulge, where he says, that, and again, he's talking about Bakhmut, where we withstood the Nazi assault in, during Christmas, and now he and his troops during this Christmas are going to withstand the Russian assault in Bakhmut. He says, quote, Ukraine holds its lines and will never surrender, end quote. Then he says, quote, your support is crucial not just to stand in such a fight, but to get to the turning point to win on the battlefield, end quote. So in this, he's uh, again playing to his audience. We need your support to turn the tide. And he's trying to use Bakhmut in the defense of Bakhmut to say, look, 
we held them off with what you gave us already. Now, if you just give us more, we can turn the tide and push them back. We can make this the decisive battle of the war, essentially, is what he's playing Bakhmut up to be. And again, it probably will be a decisive battle of the war. Unless something more decisive comes along, Bakhmut's looking like it's going to be the decisive battle of the war. But not in the way that, again, not in the way that he's laying it out to be. It's looking like it's going to be a decisive battle in the war precisely because it looks like he's going to lose. And when you lose Bakhmut, and given how much is being invested in Bakhmut, and given how much he's playing up Bakhmut, I now have more reason to believe that Bakhmut truly is this linchpin of Ukrainian defense in the Donbass, and truly is this crucial centerpiece of their logistics. If it is this important as to be the centerpiece of his speech, and is in this important as to be fought over for so long, if Bakhmut falls, it will be the decisive battle of the war, again, unless something else comes up. Just not in the way that Zelensky is painting it out to be, because he's going to lose in Bakhmut. And if you lose in Bakhmut, and Bakhmut pans out to be this really, really, really important location, which again, I now have more reason to believe that it will be if he's playing it up himself. All of Ukraine, central Ukraine, is opened up by the fall of Bakhmut opened up for the Russian offensive that we're now seeing is, you know, forming on the horizon. All that flat ter all that flat territory comes just a little ways after you take the Donbass. So when Bakhmut falls and Ukraine has to pull out of the Donbass, now you're in tank territory. Which means you're vulnerable to a offensive maneuver by Russia. And you don't have much good in the way of defenses aside from the cities themselves, but the cities are spread far and wide. This will be a decisive battle, but precisely because he's going to lose it, not because he's going to withstand the Russian tide and then turn it back like Stalingrad. He's going to lose. So, again, he's picked a really poor city to sent to be the centerpiece of his speech. So, but he's saying, "Give us support, and we can turn back the tide." Again, playing to the per the perceptions that people have in their minds, courtesy of the media and the press, who won the propaganda battle decisively. He said that he needed more cannons and shells to win. If so, and and this is a quote. Quote, if so, just like the Battle of Saratoga, the fight for Bakhmut will change the trajectory of our war for independence and for freedom. End quote. So, he's trying, he's deliberately appealing to aspects of American history in this speech to try to drum up the sympathy from Americans to aid him in his war effort. And with especially with the cannons and shells being compared to Saratoga of all places. Granted, uh, Saratoga and the American War for Independence is a very different conflict from what he's dealing with right now. And our enemy was an ocean away, whereas the Russians will always be right there. But he's asking for more cannons and shells to win, which I can't help but, you know, 
tie back to what Zeluzhny was saying uh, a few weeks ago when we talked about the interview he gave, where he's saying, if we have all of this equipment, we can win. He says, we can win. We just need all of this equipment that we don't have. So if you need all this equipment that you don't have in order to win, and it is unlikely that you're going to get this equipment, given how much support for your country has died down, then what you really told me is that you're going to lose. And that's what Zelensky has also now said. Your support is crucial, not just to stand in such a fight, but to get the turning point on the battlefield. He says we need more cannons and shells to win. You're not going to get the cannons and the shells to win. The Ukrainians use more than we can produce. They use more in a day than we can produce in a month. You're not going to get it. So just like with, with what Zeluzhny said, where he needed 300 tanks, 800 infantry fighting vehicles, 500 artillery pieces, and if all that assumes the fuel to run the vehicles and the ammunition for them to be useful. If you, if you need all that to win, and it's extremely unlikely that you're going to get those that, the, that equipment, then again, what you have really just told me is that you're going to lose. He has now said, in the same way that Zeluzhny has, that he's going to lose. And it's very, 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 very subtle. And had it not been for that Zeluzhny interview, I might not, I might have missed this myself had we not gone over that interview. But he's now saying exactly what Zeluzhny said, just in a different way, and in a more grander way, you know, Zeluzhny was giving a, an interview, whereas he's giving a, this grand speech to the joint session of Congress, but he has snuck into that speech, that triumphalist speech, that, yeah, by the way, we're going to lose. And again, that plus the context of they all have access to this military intelligence. Everybody in that room already knew this. And yet they're still going to go along with these policies. Now, he continues by saying he said uh, he said that Russia found a partner for its genocidal policy in Iran. Now, he's not talking about Russian genocide in Iran. He's saying that Iran is a partner to Russia's genocidal policy in Ukraine because Iran has sent drones to Russia. And he went on to say, quote, it is just a matter of time when they will strike against your other allies. If we do not stop them now, we must do it. End quote. So he's also just refuted one of his earlier points where he said that the ocean won't protect you. Uh, He's saying that they're going to strike against your other allies. Not that they're going to strike against you, you being America, that they're going to strike against your other allies. If we do not stop them now, we must do it. Well, if the war in Ukraine can't be ignored, can't be frozen, and we can't hide behind an ocean to stay away from it, well, what? why can't... Why, why can we then hide behind an ocean when the Iranians and the Russians strike one of our other allies. Why is it different for Ukraine, but not these other allies who are actually U.S. allies, not, you know, partners in a proxy war? So now that's just a, a slight inconsistency in what he has said 
which again, very subtle, because a lot of people probably won't notice it, because people have this emotional response to allies where, you know, you know me, I do not care, <laughs> but he's drumming up fear, not just in Russia, but in Iran, so very interesting that he's chosen to do that. I wonder if he would have something similar to say about China. China's also passively, not very actively, but passively, assisted in Russia's war effort. He hasn't said much in the way of that. So, interesting that he chose Iran, of all countries. So, but it's clear, you know, looking back on it, and that was sort of the, the meat and potatoes of his speech. It's clear he was trying to tie the events of his war to various wars in American history through imagery. And the reason he did that is, again, one, he knows his audience, and two, he's trying to fight against the Ukraine fatigue, taking hold of basically every country, doling out all this warfare, this welfare to him, and because the United States is the only one of meaning, he has come to the United States. He, he didn't go to Germany, he didn't go to the, the EU Parliament or the, the European Commission. He came all the way across the Atlantic to us, because we're the only country that matters in this conflict. We're the only one that can do anything because everyone else is, you know, worthless, worthless, militarily speaking. Okay, militarily. You don't, you guys don't have a military. You know that. Okay, let's. <laughs> but he came all the way over here because he knows that America is the only country that's going to actually even have the potential to do the things he's asking for. So he's trying to focus his efforts on fighting Ukraine fatigue in the United States. So that, that's what he was trying to do. Now, that's what he's trying to do. Now, this Ukraine fatigue is a sentiment uh, which has always been stronger in the United States than in basically every other Western country. If for no reason other than the fact that the Republican voter base thinks that China is the real enemy, not Russia. So they don't really want us involved in this war because they want us involved in the other war over Taiwan. And then there's the America first side of things. The, the, you know, the, the true America firsters, the ones who don't want us in the war. You have the anti-war left, what's left of them. <laughs> the, the Jimmy Dore types who just don't want us involved in wars at all, you know. Thank goodness for them. You know, so the Ukraine fatigue, or at the very least, the anti-war sentiment, has been a bigger obstacle in the United States in the form of a political opposition, right? Because it exists across the West, just not in the form of a proper political opposition. It, it exists here more than in any other place. If, again, for no reason other than the fact that the Republicans think that China is the real enemy, not Russia. And given the strength of the sentiment and how that sentiment has only grown over the course of the war with how these politicians keep inflating our currency and making our dollar worth less and less and less and prices here keep going up and up and up, I don't believe that Zelensky is going to be successful in his endeavor. Uh, that being trying to change the minds of the American population to stay with him in this war. 
but that will not stop these politicians from giving him money as if he did change our minds. Now, Zelensky brought up, and I said I was going to get back to this, but he brought up his belief that the war can't be ignored and how oceans can't protect countries from it. This is a blatant lie. And sure, you might believe that America has to be involved in this. I don't, and I can tell you exactly why. This is a blatant lie. Because no one in South or Central America is in danger of being attacked by the Russians. Nor do they fear that it would happen to them. Australia is not in danger of being attacked by the Russians. Egypt, Ethiopia, and just about anywhere else in Africa is in no danger of being attacked by Russia. And when you look at things through that perspective, you can really understand how I come to the conclusion that Russia and China are not my problem as an American. Where, and, and how I believe that Americans who think that they are, are deeply misguided. Deeply, deeply misguided if they think that the ocean isn't going to protect us from these conflicts and we just get magically drawn in. Well, if we just get magically drawn into these places, why don't the Brazilians also have a military base in Saudi Arabia? Why don't the Brazilians also have military forces in Europe? Why don't the Mexicans... Why does Mexico not fear China? Why does Brazil and Peru and Chile not fear China? Why does Argentina sit and chill on the south end of the South Continent and be perfectly fine not being involved in these men? It's because our perception of needing to be involved in the world is based on a lie. And you can look to our neighbors to see that lie. Because they're not in danger of Russia. They're not in danger of China. They are in the same location geostrategically as we are. Which means that we're not in danger of being invaded by Russia or China. So again, this idea that we can't ignore the war. And that the ocean can't protect us from it. It's a blatant lie. Now, we move on. And again, the only thing that distinguishes the U.S. in that regard is our military presence in Europe via NATO. But even with NATO, Ukraine could get annexed in its entirety and nothing would happen to the United States. We would not be in danger of being invaded by Russia just because Ukraine lost a war. Um, that's just the way it is. I myself would even go as far as to argue that we've never been at risk of any invasion by Russia People speak of the Soviet threat, but the Soviet threat was never to us. It was to the Europeans. But because we were in Europe at the time and decided to stay, suddenly the Soviets became our problem. Some people say that if Russia conquered all of Europe, they would pose a threat to us and therefore we had to act and fight off the Soviets. But the people who say that ignore the events of 1814 when that exact scenario came to pass. Because when Napoleon was defeated, you know, the first time, before Waterloo, it was the Russians who captured Paris. And there were Russian troops all over the continent of Europe. So if Russia being in control of Europe makes it a threat to the United States, then that would have been more true in 1814 than in 1945. 1945, we were the biggest industrial and economic power in the world, and we had the second largest army, second only to the Russians. We had the largest navy, the largest air force. 
we were number one. Compare that to where we were in 1814, we were a, a damn near a backwater. Whereas the Russians had just beaten the most powerful nation in Europe, which technically made them the most powerful nation in Europe, but no, no one wants to say that. And they had a, they did that. Their economy was larger than ours. Their military was way larger than ours. Their navy was larger. Everything about them was larger. Even territorially, they were larger than us. I mean, they're still larger territorially. Population-wise, they were way, they were like 10 times larger than us. 10 or... Eh, you know, I'll, I'll go with 10. 10. The discrepancy between us and Russia was way bigger in 1814 than in 1945. And vastly in Russia's favor, of course. And the same was also true of China at that time as well. Which is why I don't fear China. Now, Zelensky also says that countries cannot stand by and feel safe because the world is too interconnected. Now, firstly, I'm pretty sure the Chinese feel perfectly fine not being in this war. You know, and the Indians, and the Saudis, and the Pakistanis, and the Afghans, and the Indonesians, and the Singaporeans, and the Thai, and the Vietnamese, and the Cambodians, and the Burmese, and the Bangladeshis, and just about everyone in Africa and Latin America. I'm sure they feel perfectly fine not being in this war. So that's, again, not true. And I've seen this interconnectivity argument used many times before. Usually in response to Trump administration policies, or as I like to call them, common sense policies. But the interconnectivity argument essentially is used to say that United States can't withdraw from the world and can't stop being the world police because of interdependencies on other countries for materials and goods from overseas. But that argument ignores the self-sufficiency aspect of, you know, people who want us to go home. Because we don't just go home and, oh, we're just going to keep all these dependencies. No, it's we're going to go home and we're going to be self-sufficient. They completely ignore the self-sufficiency aspect of Trump policies, which are specifically meant to counteract those interdependencies. But here, Zelensky is using the interconnectivity argument to say that what happens in one country matters in another country. And while that itself is true to an extent, especially for neighboring countries and major trading partners, it's not a universal truth. Ukraine produced a lot of grain and a lot of fertilizer. But had America and Europe not sanctioned Russia to high hell, then grain prices and fertilizer would have still been available to them, just at a moderately higher price. So yes, what happens in Ukraine matters, but the extent to which it matters will vary by country. I mean, just look at Russia. They produce their own grain and their own fertilizer, so they haven't been impacted by the fertilizer and grain shortages, which have been caused by the very war that they themselves started. So, just uh, goes to show what I mean when I say, yes, it matters, just not in the way that he thinks it does. And I guess not in the way he thinks it does is the theme of this entire speech. <laughs> uh, I digress. But speaking of Russia... Now we should get into the other topic of today's episode. Today's other topic. Oh, goodness. I think I completely passed over to China. We'll, we'll get into China and then we'll move into Russia and their remilitarization. 
So here we go. Here we go. We have China. They're making waves. Uh, earlier this week, China conducted joint patrols and joint strike drills in the water and airspace surrounding Taiwan. That's the joint aspect of this. It's their Navy and their Air Force working together. And that came with 47 incursions into Taiwan's air defense identification zone. If you look at it, you'll notice that it strangely juts out really far into China, mainland China itself. But nevertheless, a lot of these went over the, the halfway point of the Taiwan Strait anyway. So I guess it's still fair game to call them incursions. But to me, this, while it is a drill... And while it's not necessarily the biggest story in the world, to me, it is more proof that this conflict is one going to happen and two proof that this conflict is going to go down the way that I have speculated it would. And that's another bit of evidence that we have on top of the Pelosi visit, because if you remember when Pelosi visited Taiwan, the Chinese put that island under a de facto naval and air blockade. Now, who, what, what? isolationist, nationalist, small-time geopolitical podcaster, do you know, who would have said that something like that would occur? Huh. Oh, yeah, that, that, that High Sean guy from This Week in Geopolitics come to you every Monday. But I said that, and I myself was shocked because, you know, it's one thing to make a speculation about what I think is the, the common sense way to go about this. It's another thing when that's exactly what happens as a response to this major incident. Because it was major for the Chinese and major for the Taiwanese as well. Probably a, a key, one of the key things that made them vote out the Democratic Progress Party and vote in the Kuomintang. Uh, if you, you remember the, a few weeks ago they had those elections and there was a massive defeat for the the DPP. Pelosi's visit probably played a major hand in that outcome. Now, we'll see if it was just the cycle coming earlier because we went over the how the parties switch hands every now and then. The, the control of the government switches hands between the parties every eight years or so. This came two years early, so we'll see what happens from that. But... When you see the response that China had to that, which was to place the island under a naval blockade and effectively put a no-fly zone over the island, an air blockade as well, that's exactly what I said would happen. Except I, I said it in a wartime scenario. So if that's what they're doing now in response to political crises, if that's what they're doing now as a drill where they are circling the island with ships and planes, they're practicing. They're literally doing the dress rehearsals for exactly what I said they would do. They're going to put Taiwan under a naval and air blockade from which nothing can get in or out. That means no chips. That means no mil U.S. military support. You just can't get it onto the island. You can't get it onto the island. And you can't get anything on the island off of the island. No chips. That means a, a built-in chip shortage for the, the entirety of the war. Which means that if we want to go to Taiwan, we're going to have to fight our way in. But if this thing goes down and we find out that there are American troops stranded in Taiwan, 
that's a political crisis just waiting to happen. And unfortunately, a justification for war. And this is precisely the, why I say we shouldn't be involved in these countries like that. Because we don't know what can happen. Uh, granted, this one we could have seen from a mile away. But this, right now it's a drill. What happens when it's not a drill tomorrow? It's a drill today. What happens when the day comes that, it's not a, that this is not a drill anymore? This is the dangerous game of playing this interventionist, we can control the world type game. It's dangerous. But the fact that the Chinese are doing this in this way on now two occasions, one with the Pelosi visit, well, they, they, did, they did this as a scramble. They scrambled to do exactly what I said. Now they're actively practicing what I said they would do in the form of joint drills. This war is coming. It's going to go down exactly the way I said it would on the, with regards to the, the blockade. And hopefully it doesn't have to go down the way I said it would on the other aspect of this, the naval warfare aspect of this. And that if we get anywhere close to this place, we're going to get shot at and sunk by Chinese anti-ship and hypersonic missiles. They will have total dominance of the skies. I hope it doesn't come to that. But again, no one wants to pull out from these overcommitments. Everyone wants to double, triple down because if we leave one place, what does that say to our allies? And uh, all that old tired old garbage that you've heard me complain about for so long. But uh, I want to bring this up because it's yet another instance that shows what I've been talking about. You know? And... Perhaps, uh, uh, there is a little bit of a hope here, perhaps, and this is a really, really big perhaps, but perhaps exhausting ourselves in Ukraine might serve to keep us out of Taiwan. Given how much we're going hard in on Ukraine, and how we're, we're, we're now betting two family farms instead of one, uh, given how much we're go going in on Ukraine, we might exhaust ourselves enough to stay out of Taiwan. And that might end up being the best case scenario given the current situation. The, the best, best case scenario would be to not be in Ukraine or Taiwan or any of these places, quite frankly. But given the current situation, the best you know, damage control would be to stay out of Taiwan after the Ukraine thing is over. That, so if that comes to pass, and again, that's this is a, that's a really big if. Then, I can be content with that. But again, that's a big if. I have not forgotten who I'm dealing with, so I I'm not gonna bet on that. But it's a good perhaps to look at. But now, I want to get into the final subject of today's episode, which is Russia's remilitarization. And this is a really long episode. I didn't expect. I didn't intend it to be this long. But I guess I just had a lot to talk about. But we'll uh, let's let's get into this. So Putin had a meeting with his National Security Council, which was then followed by another meeting with the Collegian of the Russian Ministry of Defense. And this is a really, really big meeting of essentially all of Russia's military leadership. And Putin 
believing rather accurately, I might add, that the West seeks the destruction of Russia, has essentially declared that Russia is in a state of conflict with the West, which she also believes will go on for an indefinite period of time. Now, I say Putin because it's easier to say Putin, but I have to stress that this is not just Putin. This is him and his national security coming to this conclusion, his national security council coming to this conclusion. This is him and his ministry of defense coming to this conclusion. This is him and this collegian, this massive meeting of Russia's military leadership coming to this conclusion along with him. This is not just him dictating, yeah, we're, we're going to get ready for conflict with the West. They're on this relatively the same page here. Now, they, they might be on different paragraphs, they might be on different sentences, but they're all on the same page here. They all believe Russia is in a state of conflict with the West, and that that conflict is gearing up to be a prolonged one. And I say accurately because he's not wrong to believe this. They're not, none of them are wrong to believe this. When all of NATO starts pouring in and belt-feeding Ukraine with weapons and money and ammunition so that they can fight Russia. And with many of them stating the aim of trying to beat Russia in this war, to break up Russia, and to have, at the bare minimum, to have a regime change in Russia, to remove Putin from power, even Biden saying this guy, has, this guy can't remain in power. When... You have all of NATO saying this, and all of NATO doubling and tripling down on this Ukraine war. What else can you say about that? What other conclusion can you draw from that other than the West wants to destroy Russia? They want, you, they want regime change in Russia. They want regime change in countries that are allied to Russia. They, they they can't stand Russia being anywhere. They can't stand Russia doing anything. They, they, they don't even want to... They want a pipeline to Russia, but then they don't want to open the pipeline to Russia. Then they blow up the pipeline to Russia. They want to expand their military alliance onto all of Russia's borders. They, they got Finland and Sweden this year. They wanted Ukraine. They want Georgia to be added to that list as well. When back in the 1990s, they said not one inch further east. And that was when NATO's furthest eastern country was Germany. You know, not counting the, the bits of Norway that have a border with Russia. Germany was as far east as, you know, NATO went. And then they went all the way to Poland and Romania. What, what other conclusion can you draw? They, they blame Russia for the 2016 election. They blame Russia for everything. It's Russian this, Russian that. What other conclusion can you draw from this other than the, you are in a state of conflict with the West? They hate you and they want you destroyed. And they're willing to sacrifice the well-being of their own people to bring that about. So that's the conclusion that Putin, his National Security Council, and his 
entire collegian of his ministry of defense have come to. And the response that they have come to, you know, to that threat that they have identified, the response that they have settled on is for Russia to remilitarize. This remilitarization will effectively serve as their second mobilization for the Russo-Ukrainian war, uh, but I imagine that the troops that they mobilize are going to stay in the, they're going to stay in the active duty even once the war is over. Maybe those other troops will go home, but the troops a part of this mobilization are likely to stay in Russia's active duty in a more long-term sense. So this remilitarization will entail ten. It'll entail the creation of ten motorized rifle divisions, most of them from merging brigades and consolidating them into divisions, and they'll be creating three new divisions from uh, the reservist manpower pool that they're going to draw on for this mobilization. They're going to be enlarging their tank divisions, primarily from what I can tell, to increase the number of infantry working alongside the armor. They've had problems with their armor not being backed up with enough, you know, boots on the ground to assist in engagements, so I imagine they're going to be adding infantry to their tank divisions. They're going to be enlarging uh, no, they're going to be enlarging their airborne forces to six paratroop divisions and they're also going to be beefing up the the personnel, the numbers of personnel working within these divisions. And as I was watching the Duran and Alexander brought up that the Soviet Union had seven paratroop divisions at a type. So now Russia has six and though it's likely to have more people in those six divisions than the Soviets had in their seven divisions together. You're also going to have the consolidation of naval infantry brigades into five naval infantry divisions, two new military districts created around Moscow and St. Petersburg. There'll be a, the placement of an army corps on the border with Finland. And all in all, about another half a million men are intended to be added to Russia's standing army. So, if this second mobilization finishes before the war ends, then Russia will have 1.6 million men in their army, serving under their armed forces. I mean, And even if the 300,000 reservists and the nearly 100,000 volunteers go home after the war ends, we're still talking about a force of 1.2 million, which is nearly double the size of what Russia's standing army was at the beginning of the war. 1.2 million. And that's roughly equivalent to the total size of the U.S. military, which hovers around the 1.45 million mark, consistently with only our number of reservists changing, usually. But that usually stays at around 700k. So as Russia... And the Russians will have a, a very comparable number of reservists themselves. As is evident by the fact that they're even able to carry out these two mobilizations back to back. 300,000 and then another 500,000. And they're still going to have more. So now they're, you're talking about a Russian military comparable in size to the U.S. Except it's way better suited for fighting land wars. And it's going to be able to take all the lessons from the Russo-Ukrainian war that they learned from fighting it firsthand against a NATO-trained army who was equipped by NATO and carried out tactical maneuvers that 
would be standard in NATO. So they've effectively gotten all the experience that they would need to fight NATO and win, fighting the Ukrainians. And this is without an Air Force, mind you. They also intend for a large increase in their military production to support this buildup. And this is likely going to be built... They're going to... Oh, goodness. They're likely going to be building off of production increases, which were meant for the war in Ukraine. They're probably going to continue that even after the war is over to make sure they have a really good stockpile of weapons for their enlarged army so that you can maintain large, high-intensity operations across perhaps a very, very broad front line if what you're looking at is a prolonged conflict with NATO, you're going to have to factor in that, hey, this might become a shooting war. We need to make sure that we have the stockpiles ready so that we can fight it out. And so that's what it's looking like. They're going to ramp up production for their air force, but they're mainly focusing on the ground forces. So expect more of their anti-air systems and their air defense systems Expect more S-500s and 400s to be produced. Expect more of their T-90 and T-14 tanks to be produced. Expect more of their missiles to be produced, both standard and their guided and hypersonic missiles. Expect more, lots more artillery uh, and artillery shells to be produced in their, their mobile artillery units, the self-propelled guns. So, this is huge. A really, really big buildup that will have consequences moving forward even once those even once those troops that were part of the first mobilization go home. You're still talking about Russia having one of the largest militaries on the planet, uh, and this time the number being much more closer to what the U.S. has. Except the U.S. is dealing with shortages because we gave so much to the Ukrainians. The Russians are dealing with production surpluses. We're dealing with shortages. The Russians are dealing with surpluses. And there have been people saying since like June that the Russians were running out of ammunition. They've, they've been saying this all summer. They've been saying this all fall. They were wrong. But even if they weren't, then this additional buildup in production will guarantee that Russia will not run out of ammunition anytime soon. Certainly not for this war. And this is really big. Because this is the result of all this intervention, of all this meddling. This is the end result of interventionist policy. We have provoked and a country that didn't need to be our enemy into being our enemy. And now they have mobilized and they're going to remilitarize. They're, they're not just mobilizing for the war. They're, they're militarizing, which means that you're going to stay. That, that's a standing army that they're going to be keeping of over a million men now. And you have to you think about this. Think about this. Once they have taken all of Ukraine they're going to have an additional bit of manpower to pull from. I suspect that at least half of the Ukrainian population, so that's 22 million, I suspect that at least half of that will remain within Russia, uh, you know, the part of Ukraine that gets annexed by Russia. I suspect that at least half the population is going to stay. 
which means that that's 22 million people being added to Russia's population. I suspect that once the war is over, the Union state will advance and Russia and Belarus will come closer to a full integration. And that's another 10 million. So all in all, when you look at Russia's 144 million, add another 22 million onto that, that's 166 million. You add Belarus's 10 million onto that, that's 176 million. You have a Russia with a population roughly equal to what it was in the First World War. That's a mighty fine Russia, and they have all the strategic depth that they had before, minus the Baltics and minus Moldova, of course. But they, that's still a lot of strategic depth. And if it does come to a, a shooting war with NATO, NATO has exhausted itself on Ukraine, which means, well, you can say goodbye to the Baltics if that ever happens. They're not going to leave that liability there. This is, this is something that truly did not need to happen. And, I, and that's the, really the story of the Russo-Ukrainian war to begin with. Didn't need to happen. But it happened as a consequence of really bad interventionist policy. Which I guess is redundant considering I believe interventionist policy itself to be bad policy. But this did not need to be this way. It really didn't. And while you, you're seeing Zelensky and the politicians in Washington do these strange victory laps in quite li literally an echo chamber <laughs> on the floor of Congress, Russia is preparing for decisive victory. A decisive, not just tactical victory, but a decisive strategic victory. One that reshapes the balance in Europe for decades to come. Because as it stands, we might end up with an actual shooting war between Russia and NATO. And the Russians are playing for keeps, and we are not. So, the, the fears that people had that Russia would, they would go on beyond Ukraine, and they would start taking this country and that country, that wasn't going to happen. But because we made it our business to be involved, we made it more likely to be ha to happen because of our alliance, because of NATO. Would re Russia was perfectly fine leaving these countries alone until we decided we were going to try to use the countries on Russia's borders against Russia. So now they invaded Ukraine. They didn't need to do that. The Baltics are emboldened to do strange things to Russia. Uh, the, the Lithuanians hosting Belarusian opposition leaders and the Poles claiming that the Belarusian election was rigged and that something needs to be done by the EU against Belarus, that's Russia's ally. And we're going to be shocked that the Russians don't appreciate us doing that? The Lithuanians blocked Russia's passage to Kaliningrad early on in the war. Now they have to resupply by water. But what happens when some idiot... Like now that Finland and Estonia is now that Finland is a part of NATO, you have the prospect of Finland and Estonia trying to block Russia off from leaving port in Saint Petersburg. If these reckless actions being taken, especially on the part of the Baltic states, because we need to stop Russia and Ukraine so they don't do these things to us, 
These interventionist actions are bringing about the thing that you were afraid of. But no one wants to stop. And so now you have a mess that didn't need to exist. And so now, more than ever, the vision that I see, because last, uh, it was not last week, the week before last when we talked about Zeluzhny, I said we could start, we were starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. But that we couldn't see the picture. But the picture I'm starting to get is one of a greater Russian Federation. That, that's the picture I'm starting to get. Because as we, we being NATO, start continuing to push on Russia's frontiers, their response is going to be to push outwards back at us, and we do not have the capability to stop them from pushing back. We don't. If we get into a war with Russia, they will take the Baltics. They might even take Finland again, too. And, you know, just take the whole coast and leave it at that. A total victory, a complete strategic victory, not just tactical victory on the battlefield in Ukraine, a complete strategic victory that changes the balance of power in Europe forever. Well, n not forever, but, you know, for a, a good number of decades. Forever is a very long time. That, that'd be huge. That would be absolutely huge. And that kind of defeat... We don't know how countries would respond to that, but it didn't need to happen. But our actions make that possibility that we were afraid of happening. Our actions are making that possibility more and more likely. So it's a very interesting thing that I wanted to talk about uh, today, but, but that's all I've got for you today. I did not intend for this episode to be this long. I'll be completely honest with you, but that Zelensky speech had a lot of stuff to go over. And boy, was it hard for me to watch. But I did it. I did it for the people. But alas, that's all I've got for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's uh, extended broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is... Definitely changing. Definitely, definitely changing. And we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So until we meet again next Monday, Servus.